thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello, this week on the programme we are ditching our lab coats for some artist overalls. From coding musical compositions to the clothes that can remove air pollution, we are looking at how art has helped science. Plus, in the news, the most powerful rocket ever built takes to the skies, we break down Bitcoin, and there's evidence that vaping could give you a chest infection. I'm Katie Haler. I'm Georgia Mills, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. The emergence of Zika virus in Brazil in recent years has led to millions of infections. The majority of these had no symptoms at all, but some individuals were pregnant and this led to devastating damage to their baby's brains and caused a condition called microcephaly. But this only affected a very small number of the infants. So did the others escape from harm? Well, a new paper published this week suggests not. Chris Smith spoke to Christina Adams-Wardorf, who says that Zika virus infection can still do lasting damage to the developing nervous system without causing obvious microcephaly. Early 2016, I was reading a newspaper and it showed an infant with a very small head in Brazil. And the question was on the front page, could this be related to the Zika virus? And I knew immediately that my life would change. And we began to study intensively whether Zika virus could, in fact, be causing small heads in infants that were exposed to Zika virus in utero. But how was Zika virus actually infecting the fetus? And what was the spectrum of injury? And could we actually detect some of the early signs of this injury in the fetus? For the study, we actually used a non-human primate model, a pigtail macaque, which uh, we could use to model a Zika virus infection in pregnancy by inoculating uh, Zika virus under the skin of uh, the mother. And then we could follow what happened with ultrasound and then see what happened at the time of delivery in the fetal brain. Did the virus get into the fetuses in these monkeys? It did, and we found that Zika virus did indeed cause significant damage to the fetal brain even when the head size was normal. And the regions in the brain that were hardest hit were areas that generated new brain cells. One very important injured part of the fetal brain was something called the hippocampus. And cells in this part are very important for um, memory and learning, and they contribute to brain health through at least adolescence. So loss of these brain cells is expected to cause problems with learning, memory, behavior, and may not show until the child might be even one or two years old. So are you saying then there might be a sort of clinical iceberg here where we know that there's the dramatic effect, microcephaly, a small head, small brain, and we know that happens in, you know, what, 
5% of, of cases where there's been an infection. But there may be this enormous burden of disease out there that we don't know about where there has been some subtle injury to the brain during development and that may not manifest until the individual starts to miss developmental milestones or starts to show deficits once they grow up a bit. Exactly. Uh, we think that this is akin to an iceberg type of phenomenon. And what it also means is that our current clinical criteria that we use, um, such as head size, to diagnose a Zika virus-related brain injury really fails to capture this more subtle but very significant brain damage. Does this mean then that we urgently need to be going and appraising cases where there wasn't overt, obvious microcephaly, but there was evidence of infection having occurred to follow up those kids and see if they do end up with some kind of deficit along the lines that you're suggesting. Absolutely. And not only do we need to follow children where we know that they had a Zika virus infection, but also in cases where we weren't so sure. And we need to look for neurocognitive delays in learning and neurological disorders that develop over time. And so I think that a broader segment of the population that are exposed and at risk for Zika virus should ideally be screened in this way over a longer period of time. So what should parents look out for then? If you're someone who has been exposed because they didn't have the benefit of knowing what you've shown in this study beforehand, they're probably quite worried. There are neurocognitive specialists that have uh, testing that can be performed in young children to assess for delays in learning, changes in behavior, and things that we can actually pick up in this way. Unfortunately, these specialists don't exist in large parts of the world where uh, Zika virus is locally transmitted, but to the best that we can, we should try to make some of these tools available. And I think that we need to also be sure to let pediatricians know that the infant's head size at birth should not be the main criteria for determining if a child had a brain injury related to Zika. Many children might not then benefit from these developmental and neurocognitive tests to identify deficits. It's very worrying, especially given that over 2 billion people live within the range of these mosquitoes that transmit Zika. That was Christina Adams-Wardle from Washington University in Seattle, and her paper describing those results was published in Nature Medicine. Now, there was a very uplifting engineering achievement this week, as George has been investigating. T-minus 30 seconds. Falcon Heavy, the world's most powerful rocket, launched this week from NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida. Five, four, three, two, SpaceX, led by Elon Musk, live broadcast the event to millions, both the launch of the rocket and then a live stream of the rather bizarre payload. A bright red car with an astronaut-suited driver, David Bowie's Starman blaring from the speakers, and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy references all added into the mix. So what was the purpose of this stunt? Audacious showmanship or a scientific game-changer? Well, it looks like it's a bit of both. A couple of things make Falcon Heavy special. Firstly, it can carry about double the cargo of its nearest operational competitor. That's 64 tonnes that can be blasted into space, roughly equivalent to 10 elephants. <coughs> Luckily, instead of elephants, they used a Tesla car, one of Elon Musk's other creations, along with a dummy driver called Starman at the wheel. And they achieved this great lift partly because Falcon Heavy is actually three Falcon 9 rockets stuck together. 
They blasted off into low Earth orbit, and then the upper capsule, containing the payload, detached and fired into space. And here comes the unusual part. The rockets can then be reused. Most spaceships have rockets crash land, which means each new launch has to practically be built from scratch. But if Falcon Heavy can reuse the rockets, this would cut the price significantly. Musk claims his method will reduce the cost of a launch by two-thirds. But it didn't go perfectly to plan. Two of the rockets did make it back with a beautifully controlled, synchronised descent which wowed people around the world. Unfortunately, though, the middle rocket, which was supposed to land on a separate platform in the sea, overshot and smashed into the ocean at nearly 500 kilometres an hour. And Starman and his car may be looking fabulous, but they overshot their target of Mars and are now on their way to the asteroid belt, where it's quite possible they'll be smashed to smithereens. When possible, make a U-turn. Despite these setbacks, people are lauding the event as the start of the new space race. It was a spectacle, and may inspire future generations to go into science, galvanise competition from businesses, and further funding from governments. The technological developments mean we can send bigger things into space, such as satellites, telescopes, or even robots on missions to Mars. But one of SpaceX's biggest ideas is for the tourism industry. In fact, they want to take two tourists around the moon later this year. So this could all lead to a brave new world, or should that be worlds, of space tourism and planetary exploration. But there are concerns. Should the new space race really be in the hands of private companies? What are the carbon costs of repeated launches of this size? And could we be increasing our chance of littering space debris around this planet and others? Whatever your thoughts on the new launch, you've got to admit, they certainly know how to put on a show. And there's even a feed from Starman's car in space on YouTube. Have you seen it, Georgia? I have indeed. Apart from thinking what the flat earthers are going to make of it, I thought it was brilliant and bold and audacious and ridiculous all at once. I absolutely loved it. I quite agree. I could watch it all day. So if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Got a biological brain buster or a chemical query? Ask the naked scientists. I just wanted to know about sleep paralysis. Is it a disorder or condition and can it be cured? How much energy is in moonlight? And could solar panel technology be used to capture this energy? When you cook food with any alcohol, how much, if any, percentage of the alcohol stays behind? Every Friday, The Naked Scientist and Cape Talk unravel the science behind those weird and wonderful questions you've always wanted to ask. Download and listen for free at thenakedscientist.com slash ask or simply search and subscribe to Ask the Naked Scientist on your favourite podcast app. Still to come on The Naked Scientist, we're going to myth bust with Bitcoin and explore whether art can help science. But back to the news. And we've just heard how Starman is, albeit unexpectedly, on its way to the asteroid belt. But our next news item is travelling even further, searching for signs of life. Last year, astronomers came across a planetary system called TRAPPIST-1 in the constellation Aquarius. It's 40 light years away, which is about 370 trillion kilometres. The star at the centre of the system is only about 10% the size of our sun, which makes it much easier for astronomers to view the seven planets in orbit around it. And these planets, at first glance, are very similar to the Earth. So over the last year, astronomers have been scrutinising them in great detail. And Izzy Clark has been hearing how from physicist Amory Triod from the University of Birmingham. Our uncertainties were pretty large. What we did not know then was exactly what mass or exactly what radius the planets were. We had an idea which allowed us to call them Earth-like. 
But those properties are some of the most fundamental properties of a planet, and the mass and the radius combined uh, tell us about the density, and the density of a planet tells us about what it's made of. So for instance, a planet like the Earth has a certain density, and it's telling us that it has at the center something made of iron and nickel, and on top is a big layer of rocks. So by comparing uh, our planets to the Earth, we can uh, deduce what's inside of them, how they were built, how different or similar they are to what we know. But one thing was certain. The TRAPPIST-1 system was bright, allowing scientists to study its planetary atmospheres. But before they could start exploring, it was important to turn their attention to the star at the centre of the system. What we measure are always in relation to the star. We always measure the mass of a planet compared to the mass of the star, the radius of a planet compared to the radius of the star. So if we get the star wrong, we get the planet wrong. So we started by the most obvious. What is the star? And then uh, we observed more as the planet passed in front of the star, casting a shadow. And from how deep the shadow was, we could measure more and more precisely how big the planets were. And then we tried to measure the mass. And we did that by measuring how early or late they came in front of their star, which was a reflection of the forces that are acting between the planets themselves. And finally, uh, we did a reconnaissance observation, trying to find out if any of the planets had an atmosphere made of hydrogen or helium, something that would be similar to Uranus and Neptune. Uh, mind you, we did not know whether those planets were really Earth-like or more like Neptune. But now we can say with uh, a fair amount of certainty that they must be rocky. Our own home, planet Earth, is also a rocky planet. So are Mercury, Venus and Mars. But how similar is this system compared to our own? They are remarkably similar. Uh, when we had large uncertainties, it meant that the planets could have any mass or radius within those uncertainties and it could have fallen anywhere. But we find out that TRAPPIST-1c is almost a, a copy uh, of Venus. We find that TRAPPIST-1d looks really much like the Moon. And TRAPPIST-1e is by far the most interesting. It's the most Earth-like planet that we've identified so far, with a, an inner composition that seems to match our planet. So things are looking up with this fourth planet. Its density is almost the same as Earth's, meaning that their inner cores must be similar. But what about those all-important signs of water? TRAPPIST-1e, at the moment, we still do not know. Like The, the amount of water that is uh, on Earth is minute. 0.02% uh, of the mass of the Earth is made of water. So with this little amount, it's hard to measure it on TRAPPIST-1e. However, we do know that there is a lot of water around. TRAPPIST-1b, the planet closest to the star, seems to have a vast amount of volatiles. So a volatile is something that is not solid. If it is water, then it would have 250 times more than the Earth has. So having a lot of water in a system bodes well for water on TRAPPIST-1e. And, given 10 years, Anne-Marie suspects that we'll even know what TRAPPIST-1e's atmosphere will be like. So... Could we humans ever set foot there? With imagination only, I think. Uh, they're really close, astronomically speaking. Sadly, astronomical distances are astronomical in nature. They're enormous, extremely vast. The system is 40 light years away, and that may sound far to travel there, but it's among the 300 closest stars to the sun. 
Um, so it's close on astronomical terms. But despite this proximity, I doubt that humanity uh, will look at these worlds anytime soon. Although I do hope that our discoveries inspire the next generation of physicists to find a way to bring us there. Let's hope so. That was Amory Triod from the University of Birmingham, who worked on the four papers released in Nature Astronomy this week. Now, digital currencies have been in the news a lot recently. Some banks have stopped customers using credit cards to buy cryptocurrencies amidst concerns that they could run up too much debt. Last month, a family was actually held at gunpoint over a type called bitcoins. And here to give us the lowdown on this latest currency, bitcoins, is our go-to tech guru and angel investor, Peter Cowley. Hello. Peter, what is a cryptocurrency? A cryptocurrency, put simply, is a digital currency which doesn't have banknotes or coins or a virtual currency, but it's encrypted. So that's a very simplified version. So what is a Bitcoin then? So Bitcoin is what is the first cryptocurrency that was invented by a lady, chap, or a group of people called Satoshi Nakamoto back in 2009. And it was invented using blockchains, which we'll come to later. There are 1,400 or so different cryptocurrencies available at the moment, but Bitcoin is by far the best known one. Uh, Bitcoins have been mined for about 10 years, and so they are in quite common usage. Okay, we're talking about what what actually Bitcoin is. Is are we talking about data here? Is a Bitcoin a packet of data? Yes. So the point about the cryptocurrencies is that they're, they're a public ledger. So basically, all transactions that ever occurred are in the public domain. So anybody can see that. And the Bitcoin itself is a chunk of data within that chain, within that blockchain. Right. Okay. So we'll come on to what blockchains are, and I guess this is how does Bitcoin work. So Bitcoin is a is a chunk of data which is associated with currency, i.e. something that's to do with money. I mean, the blockchains are used for many other purposes. And so let's take the example of you and I. So if I want to pay for something you've done for me, maybe you've done some music or you've, you've written a book for me or something, I can pay you with a cryptocurrency. So I transfer a chunk of data, which is not a whole Bitcoin because they're worth thousands of dollars, but oh, yes, <laughs> Uh, to you and then you will then receive that and then you can use that right and the difference here is that we're cutting out the middle person right so instead of a a traditional bank transaction where you might give money to your bank they give money to my bank they give money to me we're passing money just between the two of us and that's the difference exactly so it's fully decentralized so that every single transaction that's going on is available for everybody to see so we're not relying on a middleman and where do bitcoins come from Bitcoins are mined, mined as in found by running through an algorithm that takes actually a lot of energy. Bitcoin algorithm, which was designed many years ago but can be changed in the future, is actually set to mine no more than 21 million of them, which the current calculation is about 2140. So somebody has some computing power somewhere mining these Bitcoins. Then they go into circulation. It costs... At the moment, probably a low number of thousands of dollars to mine it just using computing power, using electricity to drive computers. Okay, so you can make bitcoins. Correct. Um, Why bother to use them, this virtual currency, over conventional money? Um, Because originally it's because the founders didn't believe, didn't trust the banking system. So they wanted something that was decentralised, so that was effectively in the public domain. So where effectively it couldn't be lost, it was always there. So that's what it was done originally. I mean, imagine it was probably done for just interest initially, rather than necessarily the fact that it's grown so rapidly into a a currency. It's used in 100,000 places around the world. So this blockchain, this public ledger, this public account 
of where the data is going between which users, that is blockchain. We hear that Bitcoin is associated with quite a lot of criminal activity. Why is that? What makes it vulnerable to that? Well, the banking system doesn't know about it. So obviously the banking system and the, and the governments are worried that things could be happening they don't know about. So if you were to obfuscate something, this transaction, although it's in the public domain, you would disassociate your wallet ID, which is how you get at this currency, with from, from yourself, then it could mean that money could be transferred around that is non-traceable. So that's the concern. And it does happen. There are a lot of criminal activities using this. Okay, so even though this blockchain is a public ledger, you can make yourself or the transactions or who you're transferring money to anonymous. Yes, but you've got to compare it, say, with $100 bills. There are uh, trillions worth of $100 bills around. Those aren't traced, are they? They have numbers on them, but people don't write them down. So there are plenty of ways for criminals to transfer money around. But the key point is that Bitcoin isn't regulated? Is that the case? It's not regulated. It's also very easy to transfer. If you're moving large amounts of currency around, it weighs something. This can be done with an electronic transaction. I see. Okay. So can Bitcoin go from this digital medium to physical? It has to, really, because if you think about it, in the end, people can transfer and buy services and products within within bitcoins, but at some point you want to bring it out, say, to pay the rent or to pay the food bill or something like that. So there are ATMs, in fact, there are about 100 or so in the UK, and there's five or so here in Cambridge, where you can put in a £20 note and get some bitcoins out or vice versa. So they do translate into real or what are called fiat currencies. Ah, okay, okay. And finally... Do you think this is something that will last? I'm absolutely convinced. And, and being in the investment scene, there are plenty of companies there proposing blockchain and to some extent some of the cryptocurrencies. Blockchain, I'm sure, will do. There are, there are a number of reasons why it's, it's better than having other ways of doing it. Cryptocurrencies, I'm not sure. Maybe I've got a bit too much grey hair to believe that, <laughs> <laughs> that there will have trust will occur uh, there. I, I suspect it will, be, will do in time. And there are signs that the Swiss government and other governments are starting to regulate in such a way that they will become the norm. I don't know when, though. Right. So, Peter Cowley breaking down bitcoins for us there. Thank you ever so much. And now for the next topic. Public Health England suggests it should be available on prescription. Some people are taking it up for fun and others are using it to help them quit smoking. But in all cases, there's a strong belief that vaping is the healthier alternative to cigarettes. But a study out this week suggests that inhaled vapour from e-cigarettes can make the cells that line our airways much stickier, and it increases the odds that bacteria, like the pneumococcus that can cause chest and other infections, can gain a foothold. Jonathan Grigg is a respiratory consultant at Queen Mary University of London. Vaping is increasingly popular as a smoking cessation aid, and youngsters are taking up vaping itself. So it's important that we understand the effects on the, on the lung. And what we're looking at is the risk of developing a serious infection that's with a bug called the pneumococcus, and that causes pneumonia. And we know that if you cigarette smoke, you're at significantly increased risk of pneumonia. And the mechanism is that bugs just stick more to the airways and they can get a little niche and they can get a foothold in the airway and cause infection. So what we did was put uh, vape onto airway cells, human airway cells. We sort of expected not to see very much, but in fact, e-cigarette vapour significantly increased the stickiness of the bugs to the cells in the same way as cigarette smoke. And do you know how it makes them stickier? 
Well, the mechanism is really interesting. What the bug does is it hijacks a normal substance that's expressed on the cells as a receptor. It uses it as a Trojan horse. It sort of sticks to that receptor. And then as the receptor normally gets into the cell, the bug just uh, moves across into the cell. So it's a real sort of high, it's like a hijack, uh, literally. And so what we saw was that uh, vaping increased the amount of receptor on the cell and more bugs uh, stuck to that receptor. That's in cells in a dish, but how confident are you that that represents what's going on in one of your patients? Yes, to address that, what we took was a group of uh, vapors. Uh, we took little uh, scrapes of the cells from their nose before they vaped, doing their normal vaping session, and one hour after that, and we looked for the expression of this receptor that the bugs can hijack, and we found that uh, the receptor was significantly increased, at least two- or three-fold increase uh, after vaping. And does that end up reflecting an increased risk of infection? Obviously, you can't do that in human patients. It would be unethical, um, because at the moment, all you can say is that it appears the cells get stickier. It, it appears that this is secondary to the vaping, but can you put the whole puzzle together and say vaping causes more infections. You're quite right. We haven't translated that into a risk. I mean, it really needs large-scale, what we call epidemiological surveys to be able to, to, to do that the same way as smoking. But what we did do is, uh, in, a, in an animal model, we put uh, exposed animals to uh, vape and infected them with uh, the pneumococcus, and we found increased amount of pneumococcus in the nose of vape-exposed animals. So at least in that situation, we saw an effect. What about, you know, I've classically heard it said if you go and wander around in London, you may as well have smoked a packet of cigarettes if you walk down some streets because the traffic pollution is so significant. How do you quantify, qualify and, and standardise what you call vaping and the infection risk arising from it and compare it to, say, just occupational exposure or, or day-to-day exposure to pollution? I think that's a very, very important point. And we've looked at uh, various ex other exposures in our model, which are known to be increased risk of pneumococcal infection. And as you say, uh, diesel exhaust uh, particles increase the risk, especially in young children of uh, pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia. Welding uh, is an occupational exposure that increases that. And in our model, we see those, those effects. So I think, yes, just walking around a polluted environment is increasing your risk, as we know. But that does, of course, uh, mean that vaping can be dismissed, uh, this will be an additional risk to what is an unacceptable level of uh, pollution we have in our cities. Do you think it makes a difference what the composition of the vape fluid is? Because they come in lots of different flavours, don't they? It potentially does. And what we can do now with our model is to um, play around, if you like, with the vape composition. We can make our own vape. We can look at the effect of just a major component, which is propylene glycol, which is like a food additive on its own. Uh, we can add in the flavorings. And as you say, there are many hundreds of thousands of flavorings. So we can start doing this sort of these experiments to, to scale and really nail down what are the components which are causing it. As yet, we think nicotine isn't the major player, although it has some effect but what it is in the nicotine free vape it's unclear we'll have to wait for the smoke to clear to find out that was jonathan grigg there and that study was published in the european respiratory journal and if you'd like to find out more about the new stories we've discussed this week the links to each of the reference papers are on our website that's the naked along with the transcripts of each interview for every naked scientist show the naked scientists podcast is produced in association with spitfire Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. 
Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Now, Albert Einstein once said, the greatest scientists are artists as well. But is it necessarily true? For the rest of the show, we'll be exploring the creative side to science. And first up, music. Given the right tools, you can make music from almost anything. Pots and pans, conventional instruments. People have even made whistles out of hollowed out carrots. But what about making music from computer code? Well, one such software, Sonic Pi, was developed by Cambridge University's Computer Lab to get children into coding. And the creator of Sonic Pi, Sam Aaron, joins us now. Hello. Hello there. Tell us a bit about Sonic Pi. So it's one of a many line of, of what we call live coding systems. These things have been around for, for many years. But it's attempting to try and make coding really accessible, really fun and really engaging by not essentially teaching sorting algorithms, but teaching music uh, and using that as a means of engagement to try and get kids and everyone really making code. So how does it work? Well, it's very simple. You write some text, you press the run button, and if the text is correct, the computer does some interesting sounds, hopefully. And do you have to be a coding genius to be able to use this? Well, I, I think that you don't have to be a genius to do anything. I think you just need to... Have, <laughs> I think it's really important that you have an open mind and you're interested and you just have a go and you're happy to take risks. And you're happy also to realise that the first things you do aren't going to be the best thing ever. But if you pick up a violin for the first time, it's not going to sound beautiful. It takes many years to practice and hone those sounds. My mother would seriously attest to that with my uh, with my music instrument playing. Can you give us a couple of very basic examples of commands, coding commands that translate into musical sound? So how do you change the pitch? For example, so the, the simplest uh, command is play, and that's to play a different note, and the number you choose is the pitch. So a higher number will result in a higher pitch and a lower number, a lower pitch. So can you take us through how it works? Maybe give us some code. Very, very simply, yes. So you, you download this thing called Sonic Pi. It's free. It runs a Mac, Windows and a Raspberry Pi computer. It opens up and with a very simple interface. It's a blank screen. You put some text inside. And the, the first piece of text you can write, the simplest thing is the word play to have some fun and a number. Uh, in this case, I'm going to write play 60. Uh, and then higher numbers produce higher notes. And lower numbers, lower notes. Uh, and at this point, we can make any note, any pitch. Uh, and if you write two calls to play, you get chords. And if you run play, then sleep, you can make a melody. Now, that's very simple, but we have the basic of Western notation here. We can play any note at, at any time. So we can essentially play any melody, any Daft Punk, any Mozart with these two commands. And, and the cool thing is children do. Well, some of the naked scientists have actually had a go at Sonic Pi and uh, we spent a couple of hours seeing what we could come up with and um, we thought you could judge our efforts maybe, Sam. Fabulous. Right, so let's hear the first one. Quite understated, that one. Uh, that was by <laughs> the good Katie Halo. Thank Katie made much. that. Yep. And next we have this one. Definitely more lyrical and beautiful than mine, I've got to say. <laughs> and that was by uh, Lewis Thompson, who is in a band, so maybe that's oh, why. Right. And finally, we have the piece de resistance. <laughs> Very skillful with the oh. uh, the little record scratches there. Sam, what are your thoughts on them then? Well, they're all wonderful, and it's lovely to see that. And I assume neither none of you had played with Sonic Pi before much. So Could to- you tell? 
<laughs> no, I'm, I'm just guessing that. No, not at all. But I mean, my skill would be, well, not even to look at the music from an aesthetic perspective, but to look at the code and to, to see what kind of uh, code structures you used and to see what amenability the code has for other kind of modifications. Uh, okay, so who was the most inventive? So <laughs> let's, let's park our efforts to the Naked Scientist office and talk about kids because Sonic Pi was designed to help kids get into coding. Is that right? So how is it being used in schools? Absolutely. I mean, its, it's first rendition was to, to focus particularly on the new computer science curriculum that UK introduced a few years ago. The schemes of work that were created had crazy titles like Have Fun With Sorting you know, and Give Binary A Try, which was supposed to sort of excite children into making computer code be interesting. And it, I don't think it worked. So I think that the music aspect, it provides a motivational force for the children to actually do some programming. So they don't realise they're programming. They think they're making music, but actually they're coding. And this system's been used all around the world to teach basic computer science and computational thinking. And it's really a great way to get started because it has such a low barrier to entry. So if you're going to start coding, is it better to do that when you're younger? Because it's like learning a language. I think it's best to do it when you have an open mind. And typically children often have a very open, very very experimental minds and they're happy to take risks. What kind of music, though, have people made with this? A whole range of different things. So I make my own weird dance music, but I've heard pieces of music from Baroque classical music to opera to Indian tabla style music to even rock music. Is there anything that you can play us? I can play you some crazy dance music if that's if that's (laughs) that's what you want. Let's get something going. Amazing stuff. Sam, Aaron, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much. And if you want to give Sonic Pi a go yourselves, the web address is sonic-pi.net. Now from rock music to rock art. They say a picture paints a thousand words, but sometimes it can tell us even more. Paintings on rocks have helped scientists solve the mystery of when the first modern humans settled in an area, how they diversified over time, and even if they had different accents. Chris spoke to Joe MacDonald, director of the Centre for Rock Art and Management at the University of Western Australia. We're involved in a project at the moment on the Dampier Archipelago. It's known as Murujuga to the Aboriginal people that live there. It's in the coastal Pilbara, so it's about 1,500 kilometres north of Perth. And since 7,000 years ago, it's been an archipelago, but before that, it was an inland range. How long do we think modern humans have lived in Australia? We are pretty sure that modern humans got here about 50,000 years ago. We've got archaeological sites all the way across the top of Australia, um, which are increasingly coming up with that date range, between 45 and 50,000. We've also got caves with similar aged occupation in Tasmania. So people got here and they moved around pretty quickly and occupied almost the entire landscape. They sure did, and they left a lot of very impressive paintings, and, and those paintings have been added to over many years. So tell us how you study them. Well, we record what's there, and um, in different parts of the, of the country, we can obviously see different signs of what people have done through time. So we, at the moment, suspect that when modern humans got here, they did settle fairly quickly across the majority of the continent. But because they were basically moving into a naive continent, one that was not used to dealing with humans, and that that they had a pretty open signalling system and they had a very homogenous set of art styles, which we find across most of Australia. 
Is that just a founder effect? That yeah. they, they probably brought in some artistic styles as the first incomers to Australia, but then as the population diversified, because this place is huge, there wouldn't have been the same communication on the same timescales that we have today, obviously. Yeah. So that then it would have, in the same way, accents evolve. You have a different accent to me. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, that would have led to different art styles. Yeah, exactly right. And the genetics is now showing, and we've suggested before in our modelling, that, that regionalisation probably occurred in the Pleistocene because you actually have some of these earlier engraved styles which show diversification. The genetics is now coming out as well. By 25,000 years ago, Aboriginal populations in Queensland had different accents to people in Western Australia. And can you date the pictures to work out what's in the art and how those styles relate to different time zones in that migration process? We are getting much better at dating the pictures. We still have um, quite a lot of difficulties with engravings because they are, of course, they don't have anything organic in them. Um, But pigment art and art that occurs on surfaces that forms geochemical crusts, we're getting really good at getting very small amounts of the pigment out and dating that or uh, using uranium, thorium and various other techniques to actually mine in and find layers of of, uh, systems that actually can be dated in, in these crusts. So when the pigments are put on the rocks chemical changes over time begin to happen and you know what rate that sort of happens at so you can work out you can sort of trace back to when we think the art was first put on the rock we are beginning to understand that there's a team from melbourne university who's working on that in the kimberley at the moment and they are beginning to be able to demonstrate that these are closed systems that you can in fact get um, isolated uranium threads if you like in the crusts and they can actually go in and mine those and get individual dates and actually see how much of the crust was there before the pigment, where the pigment is, and then what has happened subsequently. So you can actually date a sequential uh, lot of actions on the, rocks, on the rock surface, yeah. And what story is emerging when you look at this? Well, I think what we're beginning to see is that people have um, seen the landscape very differently through time. They've obviously always marked it in a, in a way. I think humans are, are inveterate doodlers, if you like, and, and as well as, you know, we, don't, we have writing now, but I think Aboriginal people had used rock art as a way of, in fact telling information about themselves, telling information which would would distinguish them from others. And obviously, you know, people, I think, have always liked producing beautiful things. And I think Australian rock art is a really good example of this extraordinary aesthetic, which is incredibly full of information and can tell us all sorts of things about the people who made it. But critically, talking to modern-day Aborigines, because obviously what they have is a rich history that they pass on Mm. through generations. Can you tie what they tell you Mm. to what's written in those pictures? Well, yes, um, you can. We've been working with the, uh, the Madu in the Western Desert, um, who many only made their first contact with white people in the 60s and 70s. Uh, so they therefore still have a, a connection and a, con- and a whole set of narratives about that landscape, which sometimes engage with rock art, sometimes don't. But certainly where you can see these uh, dreaming mythologies going across the landscape and you can see the rock art, you can actually see patterns archaeologically which engage with that set of narratives and allows you to see how people have in fact changed that focus on the landscape through time and have marked those places differently through time. And that rock art is recursive, so you'll, people will come to a location, an important waterhole, for instance, in the desert. There will be all this rock out there from before. It won't necessarily be part of their current marking system, but the Madu say that the engravings have been there and been left by the ancestors. So these things which are there, and which are pictures of people or animals or various different things or tracks, they say have been left by the ancestors. And so they recognise that they were done by people other than them, but they're part of their narrative. It allows them to actually understand how different people have actually moved across that landscape and have engaged with it. One big question that we just don't know the answer to yet is... 
when these individuals, the early ancestors, first came to Australia, they did so 50,000 years ago or so, but then no one came since. Or did they? Because the genetics and other archaeology seems to suggest that, that one bunch of people came and they were the founders and no one came afterwards. Do, do we know why only one group of people came? I don't think we do know that. Um, I think certainly the genetics is suggesting that that's exactly, exactly right, that we don't have multiple waves, and that was certainly the original uh, hypothesis about how Aboriginal people look very different in northern Queensland, say, to, to southern Tasmania, that there obviously were different waves of people through time. That's been disproved by the most recent genetics. Um, obviously, there have been contact... There is contact between Southeast Asia and Northern Australia. We've got indication that Macassans came to actually harvest uh, trepang, you know, the, the sea cucumber. Um, that's the last six or 700 years. It's not very long. But there is that contact. So obviously people could come between once boat travel was, you know, was the way to do things. And dogs um, turned up. And we know dogs yeah, came after people. 4, well, yeah, that's right. And that's about 4,000 years ago. So that's, there seems to be some sort of introduction by people at that stage. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be any major influx of new genes at that time. So Until us lot turned up. Until us lot, that's right. <laughs> Came and messed things up, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Joe McDonald there from the University of Western Australia speaking to Chris Smith. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Katie Haler. We're looking at how art can help science, and later on, we'll be finding out if lobsters can feel pain. Now, so far, we've looked at music, painting, but now it's time for science to hit the catwalk. One project called Catalytic Clothing is adding nanoparticles to our attire. These extremely small particles stick to the fabric fibres, undergoing a series of chemical reactions to create a very reactive molecule called a radical that breaks down air pollution. Georgia spoke to founder and physical chemist Tony Ryan from the University of Sheffield to hear more. What we've done is make a technology work with clothing such that people can be perambulating environmental cleanup agents. We can make people wander around in their clothes cleaning up. <laughs> so how, how does that work? There are reports in the newspapers regularly about A, the level of pollution and B, the effect it has on human health. The invisible killer in terms of air pollution is uh, nitric oxide. So nitric oxide is, uh, is a lung irritant. But if you convert it into the acid or the nitrate, it becomes water soluble and it washes out of the air. And is this what your material does? Yeah, it's exactly what it does. So what, we, what we've done is put some tiny particles, nanoparticles of titanium dioxide, titania, on clothes the nanoparticles sit on the on the fabric the sunlight hits them it splits oxygen molecules they react with water to make this hydroxy radical and then the hydroxy radical reacts with the nitric oxide to make nitric acid which is then soluble in the water vapor that's in the air and the great thing is um because you're kind of hot and damp so the particles are bathed in warm damp air the particles deal with the pollution and then your physiology carries it away. And so how would it work in practice? How would you sort of convert a piece of clothing? Say my, I wanted a nice hat that did this. How would we go about making it work? Well, I have a couple of pairs of uh, catalyzed jeans and some catalyzed T-shirts. 
And we do it in the lab by using a, a spray, so like a diffuser spray that, that you'd use on to water plants. So we put a solution of nanoparticles into a, a hand spray device and then literally just spray the clothes. And when the water evaporates, the uh, nanoparticles are left on the clothes. To do it at scale, what we'd like to be able to do is present the technology in the laundry detergent or in fabric conditioner because this fantastic chemistry goes on in a washing machine and you'd be able to wash it into your clothes. Okay, so now I've got my I've got my hat, um, my catalytic hat. How much of an effect then will this have on the air around me? Okay, so so what I'd need to know to tell you that is how much your hat weighs. <laughs> then that allows me to calculate its surface area because I know the diameter of the fibers. And once I know its total surface area, then I can work out what the loading is of the nanoparticles and then I can calculate how much nitric oxide it would take out. So I know the numbers off by heart for a pair of jeans. Okay, well, let's let's go with jeans then. Let's make, make life easy. <laughs> so a pair of jeans would take out about five grams of nitric oxide. The average car produces about 12 grams of nitric oxide in a day. So a pair of jeans takes out the pollution from half a car. If everybody in London wore one item of catalytic clothing, then you'd be able to remove about half of the nitric oxide burden on London. Oh, wow. And I know London frequently goes over its limits for the year within about the first couple of months, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, it's already, it's already went over the limit in January for the whole year. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoops, indeed. And so what? what's the catch? I mean, this sounds like a, a great idea. So what are you hoping is going to happen next? We've not quite got to market. There's a couple of frightening things for people. First is the word nanoparticle. The second is the nanoparticles can't tell the difference between a good smell and a bad smell. So, for example, not only will they, they'll oxidise body odour, and another that the particles will oxidise, you know, is perfume. So we produced some T-shirts for a literary festival, and all the stewards wore these T-shirts. And I asked them, had they noticed anything? And they said, well, yeah, they stay clean. You can spill tomato ketchup on a catalytic clothing and it will it will disappear in a day or so. But a young lady said, my perfume just goes. And I was delighted to hear that because <laughs> it meant the technology was working. But it also means that laundry companies who basically sell the idea of freshness as a fragrance, lose that fragrance if they have technology in the washing powder that cleans up pollution. I see. Does wearing one of these pieces of clothing directly benefit you or is it more the city you live in? And therein lies a problem for marketing. So no, you don't get a benefit from your wearing of catalytic clothing, I guess unless you walk down the street backwards. Um, <laughs> But everybody else does because you leave a trail of cleaner air behind you. So it's more of a herd immunity effect. So if everyone wore catalytic clothing, we'd all benefit. But if one individual wears catalytic clothing, there's hardly any difference. Are there any other applications you could have for, for this particle? So one of the things we did was um, it works on any fabric. So uh, it worked really, really well on posters. And uh, at the literary festival, where I found out that the perfume was taken away, I spoke to Simon Armitage, the poet, and uh, he was so inspired by what I told him that he wrote a poem called In Praise of Air. 
And we had that printed on a, a 20 metre by 30 metre banner that went up on one of the buildings at the University of Sheffield. And that took out the pollution from about 10 cars a day. And you see flags all over cities. And, and this technology works really, really well in the urban environment. So we have been working with advertising companies around putting catalytic air pollution solutions onto advertising hoardings. So I suppose you'd be an advocate for art and science working together then? Completely and utterly an advocate for art and science working together. Uh, my research has been improved by my collaboration with artists and we've been able to do some inspiring art that makes people think about their environment and how they live their lives. Ah, absolutely. That was Tony Ryan from Sheffield University. And fingers crossed, we'll see those flags dotted around cities in the future. Now, for a slightly more modern and a very popular art form, and that's video games. An obvious link is that with advanced technology comes advanced graphics. But one group from the University of Cambridge are using video games to measure how we learn. Joining us now is Seb Ride from the Adaptive Brain Lab. Hi, Seb. So what exactly is your study about? So previously in the lab, we've looked at the ways that people learn. And in particular, we're looking at how people predict what's coming up in the environment that they're in, particularly in uncertain environments. This is a particularly important function of the brain. So we have discovered that there seem to be these two strategies that people use to predict the incoming situation. And we are interested in what it is that makes a person pick one of those two strategies. Okay, so just thinking about this way of learning, for example, I'm in a new situation, let's mm -hmm. say I'm, I'm playing American football for the first sure. time. And um, the ball is coming towards me and I need to adapt to the situation. What yes. are the two strategies I might I might use? Okay, so perhaps a better way of looking at it would be the rules of American football itself. You might try to memorise all of the rules of American football and get them down so that you make no mistakes whatsoever. Alternatively, what you could do is just memorise the most important rules, such as I need to run the ball to that end of the pitch. These would effectively be the two strategies. Is it, are you just taking in the most important information to save processing power, perhaps, or are you taking in all the information to save on accuracy? So we are interested in particular as to what would make you pick which of those strategies. I see. So how does your video game do this? So in the video game, we submerse people in a new environment in which they are trying to communicate with aliens who are speaking a language that you can't understand because it doesn't exist. You are presented with a string of symbols and you have to pick the next one in the sequence and you will pick either according to whether you've memorised all of the symbols up to that point or what you think is most likely to come next all the time. I see. So how well a player does, basically, you can tell sure. which strategy they're using. And I actually yeah. had a go at your game and it's, it's quite fun. You're in this little rocket and you mm -hmm. meet these aliens and then they fire a load of symbols at you and then you're rather confused and just have yes. to hit one of them <laughs> and hope they give you some fuel. And um, so looking at people's responses, this is giving you actual data to do your science. Yeah, absolutely. And we've combining this with some survey information that we get from everyone who takes part, which will tell us a little bit about their backgrounds, their personality, perhaps, and some other psychological tasks, which tell us more cognitive traits, such as working memory, risk taking, and other things like that. And who is the study aimed at? So we are targeting as many people as can possibly, but we're also looking in particular at an adolescent group. So people aged 13 to 17, because this is a vastly understudied group in the literature. We're wondering if there are perhaps a different strategies that adolescents would use to learn something than adults. Right. And so is this this new method of collecting data, I suppose, letting you reach this target demographic more easily? Sure, that's in the intended focus. So getting it out there, particularly seeing as everyone these days has access to some kind of mobile device or the internet at least, 
they should be able to take part in this study and that will get us far broader than just the people who can make it into the lab for a day of testing. What's that statistic? More people have access to a smartphone than to a toilet or something, exactly. something so. like that. <laughs> so this is, this is designed to get data and it's helping you do your science. But are there any benefits to playing video games in general? So this is a, a very interesting area of research that there's a lot of people looking into right now. So video games, partly because of the way that they're such an immersive environment that you get involved in and because you are interested in getting reward from these environments, you want to win the game, you want to do better. This leads the brain to develop. So as a result, we seem to find that people who play a lot of action video games in particular, where there's a lot of fast-paced uh, interaction between the person and the machine, People pretend to be able to track things visually. So where most of the population would be able to track four visual objects, gamers can track up to seven, maybe in excess of. And it also seems to show that there's this level of plasticity or flexibility in the brain, which only really occurs in this immersive environment, which they're using to treat the stroke patients, where perhaps part of the brain has been damaged. And the only way to overcome that is to change the connections in that area. So then would you say art has helped science? And was it when you were designing this video game where you're like, oh, as a scientist, I'm, I'm finding this is sort of a different kind of skill set now? Yeah, I think art is definitely helping science in this in this circumstance. It allows us to reach more people. It definitely makes it a little bit more fun to take part in psychological experiments. And it allows for this generation of an entirely new environment, which wouldn't be possible without it. I've got to say, some, some science studies can have you sort of looking at the clock, but make it a video game and people are only too happy to play. <laughs> exactly. Sam, Sam Aaron from Sonic Pi, would you agree then? Would you say science and art make good bedfellows? Absolutely. I mean, I could almost argue that they don't have that much difference at all. I mean, they're both founded in creativity. Uh, science is an approach which is fundamentally principled on having a hypothesis, which is a guess which is creative itself. And I think they're both tools we use to explore the society around us and ask questions that we don't necessarily ha have answers to. They're very different tools. They allow us to explore different questions. But ultimately, they're about communicating whether or not we've found those answers or whether the questions are actually worth exploring further. And, and I think to put so much force behind one and not the other, I think it's actually detrimental to, to humankind. Oh, so maybe we shouldn't really be pigeonholing these two separate ideas of art and science and just squidge them together in one big... And I think thing. that if you look throughout history, actually, there are large periods of time where we didn't actually have a separation at all. Well, that's a good place to leave it then. Thank you so much, Sam Aaron. And thanks to all of our guests this week. That's Seb Ride, Joe McDonald and Tony Ryan. And we've just got time for question of the week. George has been simmering down this question from Steve. Switzerland has now banned boiling lobsters alive. Do they experience pain? How do we know? Lobsters don't have brains, so it's reasonable to assume that they can't experience pain like we do. But how can we find out for sure? Well, to help us out, here's Professor Bob Elwood from Queen's University, Belfast. Animals face hazards that cause tissue damage, and most animals have reflex responses to protect them from such damage. Some have also evolved the capacity for pain experience. Pain is an unpleasant experience that causes changes in physiology and behaviour, and makes creatures more likely to avoid danger in the future. Let's take an example. If you put your finger in a candle, the sharp burn makes you much less likely to do it again. Oh! This feeling of pain is an important survival tool. But like Bob said, some animals just have reflex responses, like when a hammer taps your knee. This still results in them avoiding the fire, but lacks the conscious awareness of the pain. So is there any way to tell which is going on? My lab has focused on whether the responses of various species of gastropod crustaceans, a group including lobsters, 
are just reflexes, or if they are more complex and consistent with what we'd expect if they do really feel pain. We have shown through the application of potentially painful stimuli, like electric shocks, that they experience physiological stress in response, rapidly learn to avoid the stimulus, and show complex prolonged rubbing of the specific site of the stimulus application. This is reduced by local anaesthetic. Hermit crabs, given a small electric shock within their shell, remember that for at least 24 hours and quickly move to another shell if one becomes available. And many other decapods pay a high price to avoid shocks by giving up valuable resources. Finally, they make complex decisions regarding painful experiences. An electric shock might cause a hermit crab to abandon its shell, but less so if the shell is of high quality or if the odour of a predator is present, which indicates some kind of central processing. Thus, so many of the expected criteria are fulfilled, it is likely that these animals feel something akin to pain. Although total proof of pain is not available for any animal, we should err on the side of caution when that is warranted. So, if you want a guilt-free lobster thermidor, it's probably better to be safe than sorry and ask for it to be killed humanely before you start cooking it. Thanks very much, Bob, for putting the lid on that query for us. Next week, we're reaching dizzying heights to answer this question from Matt. If I fell out of a building, I would die. But if, like, a squirrel or a cat fell out of it, I think it would be fine. So how big does something have to be before fall damage will kill it? And if you think you know the answer, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on the forum, which is thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is all we have time for. This programme was produced by Izzy Clark. And do keep sending your questions in because next week it'll be a Q&A show. Our panel of scientists will be ready and waiting to tackle your weird and wonderful science questions. Join us then. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Georgia Mills and thank you for listening. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.